Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I never take anything for granted. Only a fool maybe takes things for granted. Just because it's here today, it, it can be gone tomorrow. Baby, I love you. Just the way you are. I'm a very stable genius. My touch, my feel, that's what, that's what I do. Did anyone ever hear me do the snake? Even look at Roseanne. I called her yesterday. Yes, please, Mr. Kurd. And then we fell in love. Okay. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. I know all about flipping. For 30, 40 years, I've been watching flippers. One of the wettest we've ever seen from the standpoint of water. It's really an enormous, gutless, coward. Weeds. And they're raking them. They're on fire. Please, don't be a baby, okay? A lot of the rich guys like rockets. People call it Britain. They call it Great Britain. They call it, they used to call it England, different parts. Just remember, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. Don't go changing, trying to please me. You never let me down before. I want you just the way you are. I want you the way This is intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 77 of Intercepted. Show them what democracy looks like! On December 3rd, people began to gather at the Wisconsin State Capitol to protest the lame duck Republican legislature's late night conspiracy to strip away the power of newly elected Democratic officials, including the incoming governor who unseated the right wing darling. Scott Walker. I do not believe that a single stroke of the pen by a governor of either party should be able to undo the work of the legislature in negotiation with the executive branch. Those are the kind of things that are in this bill today, making sure that the practices that we have had were both sides at the table and neither one is able to unilaterally do something. I'm concerned. I think that um, Governor-elect Evers yeah. is going to bring a liberal agenda to Wisconsin. That's Republican Speaker of the Wisconsin State Assembly, Robin Voss, and State Senate Majority Leader, Scott Fitzgerald, justifying their power grab. The proposal, passed by the State Assembly and Senate on December 5th, will weaken the governor's ability to make rules that enact laws, and it gives lawmakers the ability to control appointees to the Economic Development Agency, The sweeping changes also aim to prevent the incoming Democratic Attorney General, Josh Call, from withdrawing the state from a lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act. Early voting would also be cut down to just two weeks prior to elections. That's a move clearly intended to suppress black votes in Milwaukee. On Meet the Press on Sunday, Chuck Todd interviewed Democratic Governor-elect Tony Evers, and Todd offered a less-than-factual analysis, saying that this Republican preemptive coup was essentially business as usual, and that Democrats have engaged in similar campaigns. Now, this has happened before in many a legislature. Democrats, in fact, have done this in the past to Republican governors in lame duck sessions in other states. Chuck Todd offered no evidence to back up this claim, and by all accounts, Such actions have been rare, particularly when you consider the scope of these actions in Wisconsin. On that same show, Governor-elect Evers talked about his efforts to convince the outgoing Governor Scott Walker 
to veto the bill. Vetoing the legislation was going to be an important thing, not only for, you know, to make sure that our, our, our what happened last November, the vote of the people of Wisconsin is actually upheld and we're putting people in front of politics, but also it's just bad legislation. And uh, I made that, made that uh, pitch and uh, he was noncommittal. Now, as we went to air, Scott Walker had not yet signed this bill, but he did go on social media on Tuesday to defend the measures, saying, quote, the new governor will still have some of the strongest powers of any governor in the nation if these bills become law. Wisconsin emerged as one of the main battlegrounds in the 2016 election, and Hillary Clinton famously never set foot in the state during the campaign. So I I just don't believe that those were the determining factors about how many visits, how many people made. I just don't buy that. But there's a deeper context to why she failed to win Wisconsin and why Trump won. And also a deeper context to how an extreme right winger like Scott Walker ever even rose to power in a state famous for its progressive politics. My guest today has been studying Wisconsin for, well, his whole life, really. He wrote the following, quote, Donald Trump's victory may have shocked the Clinton campaign and media pundits, but the result merely heralded the final stage of Wisconsin's dramatic transformation from a pioneering beacon of progressive democratic politics to the embodiment of that legacy's national unraveling. Powerful conservative donors and organizations across the country had Wisconsin in their sights years before the 2016 presidential election, helping Governor Scott Walker and his allies systematically change the state's political culture. So how did Wisconsin go from a laboratory of democracy and progressive politics to become a testing ground for right-wing policies? Joining me now to break down the latest on what's happening in Wisconsin and try to tackle that question and how we got here— is Dan Kaufman. Like me, he's from Wisconsin. He grew up in Madison. I grew up in Milwaukee. Kaufman is the author of a deeply reported and fascinating new book. It's called The Fall of Wisconsin, Conservative Conquest of a Progressive Bastion and the Future of American Politics. The New Yorker's Jane Mayer praised the book saying, quote, through the microcosm of one state, Dan Kaufman does a masterful job explaining what's happened to America and why. It's not a happy tale, but it's an important one. Dan Kaufman joins me now. Dan, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. It's great to be here. So let's start just with a a 101 overview of what happened in Wisconsin after Tony Evers beat Scott Walker. Well, within 24 hours, less than 24 hours, the Speaker of the Assembly, Robin Voss, floated the idea that they were going to make some changes during the lame duck session, basically stripping uh, Governor-elect Evers of some of his powers. They were very unspecific about what they were, but some of the ideas floated immediately were to limit his control over a very powerful economic development corporation called the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation, which has um, was the liaison for the Foxconn deal. Foxconn, the world's largest contract electronics manufacturer, and it is being wooed to Wisconsin uh, at the cost to taxpayers now of more than $4.5 billion to a place uh, just outside Racine uh, called Mount Pleasant. Uh, Walker spearheaded this deal. It was also enabled by President Trump. Trump. Foxconn's first uh, American plant, it was supposed to bring back good-paying manufacturing jobs to Wisconsin, but it's turned into a boondoggle. That was one thing. Another thing that they talked about was restricting Governor Evers' ability to withdraw Wisconsin from a multi-state lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act. He campaigned on this, Governor Evers did, and he won, as well as campaigned on criticism of the Foxconn deal. To beat Scott Walker, we need a stronger vision for our future. Instead of investing a billion dollars in handouts to companies like Foxconn, I'm going to invest in our kids and our workers. So they were challenging the things that he had actually campaigned on. To understand how absurd this is, um, you have to look at how extensively gerrymandered Wisconsin is. The Republicans have a stranglehold on the state legislature, in large part, not exclusively, because of gerrymandering. In the November elections, uh, Democrats won all statewide offices, and yet they only gained a single assembly seat and lost a state Senate seat. They now have 36 assembly seats out of 99. 
It's never been more than 39 out of 99 in four elections since a very extreme secretive gerrymandering was pushed through in 2011. Well, and you had Scott Fitzgerald, who uh, is the majority leader in the Wisconsin State Senate, um, and he said the following, quote, if you took Madison and Milwaukee out of the state election formula, we would have a clear majority. We would have all five constitutional officers, and we would probably have many more seats in the legislature. Well, Milwaukee, a lot of people read that as a coded language for African-Americans. And Dane County, where Madison is, is really the economic engine of the entire state. It's the only place that's really growing in population. And and the university system is the state's largest employer. It was quite an extraordinary statement, as though those votes didn't matter. And they've said also the legislature is the most representative branch of government. Whether or not that's true in the abstract, it certainly isn't true in Wisconsin. In fact, it's the least representative because of this gerrymandering. They're basically impervious to elections. They cannot be unseated. Their majority can't really be unseated. It's so heavily gerrymandered that a federal court ruled for the first time in 30 years that it was denying Democrats their constitutional rights. And then it went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court sent it back, saying the plaintiffs don't have standing. But it was so extreme that that was the result. And is this happening in other states? Is this an unprecedented kind of preemptive coup of sorts against this Democratic incoming governor? No, it actually happened first in North Carolina, very similarly in 2016, when a Democratic governor won and broke up one party rule there. They immediately began very aggressive um, stripping of his powers. In fact, it was so extreme that earlier this year, at the beginning of the legislative session, a reporter asked the leader of the Senate, do you plan on stripping any more of Governor Cooper's power? That's the Democratic governor. And the Senate majority leaders joked and said, does he still have any? <laughs> you have any suggestions, let us know. It's very extreme there. And now they're talking about doing the same thing in Michigan. And this is telling because Wisconsin has been a kind of laboratory for a lot of this conservative ideology. This is one example where Wisconsin didn't lead it, but it's adopted some of the most extreme policies that are generated um, often by groups not from the state, most notoriously the American Legislative Exchange Council, a secretive group that was founded in the early 70s, largely, in, in a sense, by Paul Weyrich, a very important uh, new right activist who built a lot of this national conservative infrastructure. And in the Tea Party wave of 2010, when Governor Walker was elected and the Republicans seized both houses of the state legislature, they began um, passing these very extreme policies that were, a lot of them were sort of copycat bills from ALEC. Um, labor rights were curtailed, voting rights, um, a lot of things were changed. Well, and just to remind people that ALEC, which you're talking about, major recipient of funding from the Koch brothers as, sure. as well. I actually went to two ALEC meetings, interestingly enough, and it's very rare that they let a reporter in. Um, and I saw how it works. What it does is it brings together corporate lobbyists, fellows and analysts from conservative think tanks and state legislators. There's a very progressive Democratic assemblywoman named Chris Taylor who has joined ALEC as a kind of out spy. It's officially a nonpartisan group. It has that's its IRS tax status. So she goes simply to report back on what is coming next for Wisconsin. And she joked with me in my book, I follow her around to these ALEC meetings. She says the state legislators are real. It's like a three-legged stool is how she describes it. These corporate lobbyists like ExxonMobil, Pharma, the pharmaceutical trade lobbying group. And then you have these right-wing think tanks like the Goldwater Institute and so on, especially in education policy, privatizing education. And then you have the state legislators. And in her view, the state legislators are the junior partner and they're sort of handed the stuff and say, go out and do this. And they don't necessarily even have a great idea of what it is. There's other ways it works too, though. For example, the Trayvon Martin Stand Your Ground bill was drafted by an NRA lobbyist in Florida 
brought to an ALEC meeting as a model, then was adopted by this task force, and then disseminated. So sometimes it's tried out in a state first, brought to them, but it acts as a disseminator and, and propagator to a wider audience. And then 26 states, including Wisconsin, adopted a version of that stand-your-ground law. Immediately, bad policy was being replicated on essentially a national scale, wherever they had control. What's the ultimate agenda, or what are the priorities of the, the kind of coup leaders in the Wisconsin legislature now who are preemptively stripping Evers of this power? Like, what are their main priorities? Why did they do this? What do they want to achieve? Well, I think it's really about holding on to power at all costs. It's a tragedy for the citizens of the state. In some ways, it's more of an outrage than even than Act 10, which was the um, name for the law that stripped most public employees of their collective bargaining rights in 2011. Senate and signed off on by Governor Walker that would end collective bargaining rights for most of the public employees in this state. It doesn't feel like a loss today. Well over 100,000 people are here at the Capitol. But the voters, it's stripping them of their vote. It's a rise of minority rule. It is emblematic of our times, the Republican Party now is a very relentless and very cohesive machine. Nowhere has that been proven more true than in Wisconsin. Um, They are willing to undo 100 years of good, pragmatic, progressive legislation. A lot of this legislation is about engineering their own dominance. For example, decimating the labor movement, bankrupted the labor movement, which was a prime donor to the Democratic Party. I mean, their founder, Paul Weyrich, had said outright that it's not good if everyone votes. Frankly, our leverage goes down. This undemocratic strain, I think, is a strain in the libertarian right. It's important to point out that in these midterm elections in in 2018, that Democrats won uh, all five That's correct. Statewide elections. And you have Republican leaders in Wisconsin essentially, or in some cases, just blatantly admitting that they passed this plan specifically to undermine the will of the statewide vote. Right. So concerned about winning power, they were going to add a third election in 2020 to make a Supreme Court judicial election, not on the same day as the Democratic presidential primary, which they expected high turnout. So that would have made three elections in three consecutive months. It was an extra cost of $7 million. You you have to remember, this is a party that always talks about the taxpayer, but they're just, you know, they're adding something for no reason. And the Senate Majority Leader, Scott Fitzgerald, said he was very honest. He told reporters it was to give their candidate, who was a Walker appointee, who was going to be running for his first full term, a better chance at winning. That was stripped out because it was just too far. But it tells you something about what is driving it. But it's not just this issue. I think this issue is the denouement of eight years of this you know, this desire, this quest for power. And when you look at these other policies like the right to work law, the so-called right to work law, Act 10, the gutting of campaign finance laws, they all ultimately can be read as a way to engineer their political dominance, the gerrymandering. They're all pieces of it. It doesn't ensure it absolutely, but when you add it together cumulatively, it makes for a very powerful machine. You've written an incredible book that doesn't just tell a story of Wisconsin, that contains lessons for other states that are facing uh, not necessarily the same history as Wisconsin, but right-wing attempts to manipulate or undermine the will of Democratic voters. And it's not lost on people that Hillary Clinton won that election uh, in terms of votes, but lost it because sure, of a, sure. a, a of a sort of equally arcane and vicious process that is the uh, Electoral College. But the title of your book is The Fall of Wisconsin, Conservative Conquest of a Progressive Bastion and the Future of American Politics. Give people a sense or some vignettes of the progressive history of Wisconsin and why it has that historical reputation as being the state of fighting Bob La Follette and and, and sort of progressivism. Robert La Follette, who was kind of the pivotal figure of Wisconsin progressivism. He was a governor and senator, but also a failed third-party candidate for president in 1924 on the Progressive Party ticket. And La Follette, his two, I think, most important ideas were 
the need to restrain corporate influence on government. And the other was that democracy is only workable if there's active citizenship, if people are actively engaged. So he he created a lot of reforms as governor to open up the process, banning corporate donations to candidates, but also instituting direct primaries. And he also forged an unusually strong relationship with the state university. He felt like he was a graduate of that university And he wanted to draw on the expertise of faculty to create pragmatic, progressive legislation that would help the citizens as a whole. So out of this, you had the first workers' compensation law. You had child labor laws. You had a lot of progressive reforms. In fact, some people say that the New Deal was basically the Wisconsin idea writ large. Well, in fact, you tell this story of Franklin uh, Roosevelt being in the White House, and then you you say that Wisconsinites start to move to Washington, and you see the impact of La Follette's ideas and this experiment that he's engaged in in Wisconsin being adopted at a federal level. Level. It was also the. It was almost the moral equivalent of what Tommy Thompson would do many decades later when he was governor of Wisconsin, where his crime bill and his uh, welfare quote unquote reform stuff got picked up by Clinton on a national level. But talk about that er- era yes, of the New Deal, it, Roosevelt, and the nationalization of of the ideas of Robert LaFollette. Absolutely, and that's a good point. At one stage, it was a progressive laboratory for the country, and then it became a conservative one. But yes, um, the un- the whole idea of social insurance, in a way, came out of the Wisconsin idea. The Social Security Act was drafted by Wisconsinites loyal to this idea. Edwin Witte, Wilbur Cohen. Wilbur Cohen went on to draft the Medicare program. 30 years later, unemployment insurance, which had first been instituted in Wisconsin, was then nationalized. That there's some kind of social insurance to protect the elderly, to protect workers, and so on. All of this came from the University of Wisconsin, a lot of it. One of the influences was one of the early chancellors, John Bascom, huge influence on Robert LaFollem. And another one, and I want to just read this epigraph of the book because I think it captures the spirit, was the chief justice of the Wisconsin Supreme Court in the 1870s, a man named Edward G. Ryan. Uh, LaFollette actually heard this speech before he had enrolled in Wisconsin. He was going to be a freshman, and he happened to be there. And one of the, the key points Ryan made was railing against this corporate influence in the state's government. And he said, the question will arise and arise in your day, though perhaps not fully in mine, which shall rule, wealth or man, which shall lead, money or intellect, who shall fill public stations, educated and patriotic free men, or the feudal serfs of corporate capital. And it's an amazing quote. When I found it, I was it was just spoke to our age so clearly. And these reforms, and I hope people take from the book that there's also a different kind of model could exist, that this progressive history has been lost, a lot of it. And it was really common sense, pragmatic things that endured particularly the state's uh, commitment to open, transparent government, which was really overturned but in also, the last eight years. You know, Wisconsin, and, and uh, just full disclosure, Dan and I both are, are from Wisconsin. He's from Madison. I'm from uh, Milwaukee. Um, but speaking of Milwaukee, that city had a string of socialist mayors. Um, exactly. The, the yeah. last being um, the, the great Frank Zeidler, who also was a candidate for president. I believe he ran as a socialist, uh, as the socialist in party the 1970s. candidate yeah. in the 1970s yeah. for president. Um, but you, you really have... It's not just a progressive uh, tradition in Wisconsin. You also had very cutting edge thinkers who were looking globally at what happened in the Soviet Union with the Russian Revolution, with the rise of uh, huge industrial capitalism. Uh, And on a local level uh, and a state level, you had these two lions, basically, uh, in Bob LaFollette and and Frank Zeidler and, and the socialist mayors in Milwaukee. Absolutely. And I talk about that tradition. It's a really important reformist socialist tradition that was derided by people as sewer socialism, but it left such a a lasting public legacy for the city of Milwaukee and for the state. And while they had sometimes a fractious coalition, the La Follette progressives and the socialists, they did work together and the socialists endorsed La Follette for his bid. And I think at the core of it is this idea of the public sector, the belief in the public sector, which has been so stripped both by Republicans and Democrats. Describe the significance of what Tommy Thompson did when he was uh, governor of the state of Wisconsin. And and what I'm getting at, I I mentioned it or or alluded to it earlier, but 
Thompson really created a model on the state level on a number of fronts, um, labor, welfare, crime, that were adopted by the Democratic administration of Bill Clinton. Explain the significance of Tommy Thompson's time in power and when it stretched from when to when. Right. He was elected, I think, in the late 80s, and he served four terms. He was tremendously popular. He had a very different style than Scott Walker. But as you say, he was a kind of bridge figure between that earlier era and now a more extreme version. He did certain things that were more in the spirit of the old Wisconsin. For example, he was relatively good on conservation issues. But in terms of education and welfare, he did test Wisconsin as a kind of model for creating private school vouchers, giving money from the public school budget. This was the first time this had happened to private schools, mainly religious schools in Milwaukee. So that was draining the public school budget. The other thing he did was uh, welfare, so-called reform, where um, people were made to work for their welfare benefits and welfare benefits were limited. These policies were, were then adopted by Bill Clinton. But Tommy Thompson was an ALEC member as well. And he famously said, I think it was in 2002, that, you know, I love going to ALEC meetings because I can take these ideas, disguise them a little bit, and then say that they're mine. That's a paraphrase. And this is how conservative policy gets out there. And really, the big drivers of it that I saw when I was at the two ALEC meetings I went was not even the corporations, but these conservative think tanks like the Goldwater Institute or Betsy DeVos's, I think it's called American Federation for Children, all kinds of these think tanks dreaming up libertarian ideas, literature and so on, and a place for for people to meet from all over the country to kind of disseminate these ideas, attacking labor, attacking environmental regulations, attacking the idea of a public sphere. They're Ideal is a kind of libertarian society that is, to some of us, fairly terrifying. Let's talk about 2016. Correct me if I'm wrong. Hillary Clinton did not set foot in the state of Wisconsin while campaigning for president in 2016. Not during the general election. No, no. Once she was the nominee, she did not appear there once. What happened in Wisconsin? Why, why did Trump win? You know, Trump actually did worse than Mitt Romney in 2012. He got 6,000 fewer votes. I think what you had was the absence of Clinton. She had no real message for the working class voters. There was a lot of democratic disaffection, both in the African-American community and in the working class community. Some white working class people switched over to Trump. That's definitely true. He also, people forget, he made five big campaign stops in Wisconsin during the general election. At each one of them, he railed against NAFTA and the TPP and China's admittance to the WTO Maybe not each one of them, but often. He also said he was going to defend Social Security and Medicare. So a lot of his core messaging had a Democratic undercurrent to it. There was also a lot of racial resentment. It was twinned message. He won Kenosha County, which is a very deindustrialized place right on the Illinois border, uh, whereas Obama had won it by 13 points. He narrowly won it. Used to be the home of the American Motors Corporation, now gone. And he promised good jobs, and people were desperate for that. Southeastern Wisconsin is a manufacturing powerhouse, or was. You know, Milwaukee was called, I think it was Toolmaker of the World or something like that. It was an incredible nexus of those kinds of get out of high school, work in a factory, have a good life for your family, union jobs. Those are gone, a lot of them. Well, you would would see, I mean, just even culturally, the sitcoms that were situated in Wisconsin, Laverne and Shirley. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Shlemiel, Shlemazel, Hostin Pepper Incorporated. Happy days. You got that feel. This, these were working class It's a blue-collar town with a lot of class consciousness. And plus, you know, gerrymandering, it withers political activity in various places. So I think, you know, in some of these rural communities, when there was no chance for their Democratic state senator or state assembly person to win, disaffection grows. And you had that. You had a very strict voter ID law. 
um, that probably did affect some of the turnout, especially in black Milwaukee. Oh, some, some some black districts in, in Milwaukee had almost 20 percent decline in voting from 2012 to 2016. Right. It's almost like her defeat was overdetermined. You could take any one of those things and they combined. She only lost by 23,000 votes. In Michigan, it was even less. But again, she was not a friend of labor for many decades. She had been on the board of Walmart. It's a notoriously anti-union company. And then she also really supported NAFTA and the TPP. And I think people on the coast don't get the salience of free trade in the industrial Midwest. It's You can talk about automation or other things, but they can point you, this factory moved to Mexico, this factory moved to China. And you have to remember, Bernie Sanders did very well in Wisconsin. He won by 13 points. And a lot of people saw in his message some echo, especially on the progressive side, of that La Follette tradition. You've done this deep dive historical arc on Wisconsin. What's next there and what should people be looking for now that you have an incoming Democratic administration that has essentially been kneecapped by the Republican state lawmakers? Yes, I think it will be a kind of trench warfare for the next two years. There'll be a lot of court battles. The thing that you see is people's morale uh, wavering a bit sometimes. They've been the subject to eight years of attacks on long-established you know, traditions. That said, I think it angered, reawakened a lot of outrage in people because they had won the election. It's much more complicated than a blue wave or anything like that. These are deep-seated structural changes that the Republicans have attempted. And the force that's opposing them really the most is civil society. Whether they can continue their opposition will remain to be seen. Dan Kaufman, thank you very much for your work and thanks for joining us on Intercepted. Thanks, Jeremy. It was really a pleasure. Dan Kaufman is the author of The Fall of Wisconsin, Conservative Conquest of a Progressive Bastion and the Future of American Politics. You can find Dan on Twitter at DanKaufman70. Dan is also a musician, and his band has a new album out in honor of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade archive. The Abraham Lincoln Brigade, of course, we've discussed on this show, consisted of some 3,000 Americans who went to Europe to fight fascism in the 1930s during the Spanish Civil War long before the U.S. entered World War II. That band is called Barbez with Valina Brown, and the album is For Those Who Came After. And it was produced with the support of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade archives, which you can find at alba, A-L-B-A, dash V-A-L. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. B.org. Here's a track off that record, Si Me Quieres Escribir.
That's Si Me Quieres Escribir by Barbez with Valina Brown. It's off the album For Those Who Came After in honor of the veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. On September 19, 1998, an employee of a restaurant next door to a Taco Bell called the police department in Adel, Georgia. The unidentified caller said there was a body laying in the Taco Bell parking lot, someone drunk or passed out. It wasn't a drunk passed out in the middle of the lot. It was Donna Brown. She was lying in the parking lot, face up, with her arms splayed out to the side. Her head was in a puddle of blood. There was a hole where her right eye used to be and a 44 caliber bullet lodged deep in her brain. That's investigative reporter Jordan Smith. She and Liliana Segura are both criminal justice reporters for The Intercept, and they've spent the last three years examining a series of grisly murders that rocked the small southern Georgia town of Adel. And now they've produced an incredible podcast series. It's called Murderville. Jordan and Liliana uncover what happens when law enforcement locks up their first suspect, leaving another man free to kill. It's a gripping, deeply reported criminal justice thriller with very high stakes. In fact, it may well be a matter of life or death for a man that Liliana and Jordan believe has been wrongly convicted. And joining me now to talk about the Murderville podcast are Jordan Smith and Liliana Segura. Welcome both of you to Intercepted. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) It's great to be here. The podcast takes place in the small town of Adel, Georgia. How did this story first come under your radar? Well, it was actually through this attorney, uh, Jessica Sino, who's one of the characters in the podcast. She was looking for journalists who might help her report out and investigate some of what happened down there. She got in touch with us, and we sort of started going back and forth and and looking at some of the sort of basic details of the story. And it didn't take very long to realize that there was a lot going on that was very strange and worth digging into. Jordan, describe the original crime that is at the center of this story. So in September of 1998, a woman named Donna Brown, who was a night manager at the Taco Bell in Adel, Georgia, and you have to keep in mind, Adel is like about 5,000 people, okay? She is brutally gunned down in the parking lot of the Taco Bell. The cops call in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation because that happens in rural police departments all over the state. I think the chief was there, and uh, of course... our investigators not set up to handle a murder, so they turn all that kind of stuff over to Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and they had their crime scene truck there very quickly. And they come in and they quickly sort of focus their energies on a kid who's sort of an out-of-towner, a guy named Vanya Inman. And despite any actual evidence linking him to the crime, decide he's their man and sort of quickly put him in jail and decide they're going to charge him and seek the death penalty. So uh, they put him in jail, but the problem is... After this, and ongoing for the next sort of 18 months, are a series of other really brutal murders. Really brutal. Um, And it's sort of unfathomable that you just have, like, multiple crazed killers running around in this town. And so the question then becomes, did they get the right man in the first place? And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, no, in fact, they did not. From the jump, uh, one of the things that really stands out when it comes to this crime is that you know, in the sort of interim, when the local police are, are immediately responding to this incident, this crime, they don't do anything. You know, they don't, they kind of put police tape around and they don't interview any witnesses. They don't write any reports, kind of, you know, in this kind of crucial initial moment uh, where, where a lot of important evidence can be found, uh, they just don't really do anything. And the whole point is, well, why do anything when the GBI is going to take charge? Uh, why document anything? And this is, you know, Highly unusual, especially in cases that we've looked at, you know, to not write a police report is hugely consequential and a major, you know, sort of blunder. Um, So then when GBI does take over, you know, they sort of continue in the same sort of – how would you even describe it? I mean, yeah. It's well, I mean, let, 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 let's let's talk about one – I mean, one just astonishing fact that you you guys report on here is that in the car of the victim – there was a makeshift like mask that was made out of of sweatpants, right? It was like cut out of, of of sweatpants. Did anyone test that for DNA when the initial murder happened in the investigation? No. 
They didn't even find the mask. <laughs> it's literally sitting there on the passenger seat, clear as day, in tons of crime you scene photos. You guys saw it in like crime scene photos. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's so obvious. It's it's in your face, and somehow they completely missed it. Never collected it at all. In fact, it was the victim's family after they had released the car back to the family. That was like, hey, there's this mask in the car and uh, brought it in. Jim Hill, the Adel police detective, brought it in and put it into evidence. And then they never tested it. Never. Liliana, when uh, Devanya Inman is convicted, what what was the, the thrust of the case against him? Like what evidence was presented at trial? Oof. Um... I mean, that's kind of the million dollar question we keep coming back to because the the trial was, you know, as we describe in the podcast, a total shit show. It's this parade of highly dubious witnesses, uh, the first of which is kind of the reason that police even look at him in the first place, which is this kind of strange, when we spoke to him, highly incoherent, kind of low-level drug dealer who said that at some point um, – Devanya Inman had pulled a gun on him and essentially threatened him. And even though he was clear with police that he had absolutely no further information related to the Taco Bell uh, murder, he did tell police that Devanya Inman was probably perfectly capable of committing this crime. And that's literally where police start and start, you know, looking at Devanya Inman. Um, then there's a whole sort of series of other witnesses who recant pretty early on, um, including, you know, the 16-year-old employee of the Taco Bell who tells, you know, the GBI a number of different sort of changing stories. And it kind of goes from there. Well, so, and Devanya, yeah. Devanya Inman's uh, uh, alibi was that he was at his girlfriend's house um, and that and, – and you you guys interview her and she describes how he was actually – um, taking care of her small child and had had been there through the night. But then her sister ends up becoming a key witness against Devanya Inman. But basically, it turns out that she was furious with him because she alleges that he had beaten her sister. He actually was beating up my sister that night. So, But the fight and the argument, that probably happened around like between 9, 10, 10, 30, 11, whatnot. And essentially what she says to the investigators is he's lying. He wasn't there and that she thinks he's totally capable of having committed this murder. And then she she herself recanted and says, I recanted the whole statement in court under oath. So I don't see how that wasn't, you know, applied to his case or a new hearing or whatever he's supposed to have or overturn his case or whatever. She spoke to us at length about this, and it's clear. I mean, she afterwards did a significant amount of time herself. Her son is doing a significant, you know, 80-year sentence. Uh, so she's she's done a lot of growing up and uh, has all of this guilt. But she's not the only one who recanted her story on the stand. I mean, that's really one of the the truly most bonkers parts of the, the trial is that multiple witnesses recanted on the stand. So the question really is, I mean, how on earth did this outcome, you know, come to pass. But and and the, the 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 podcast is called Murderville. Jordan talk about why it's called Murderville and the other killings that appear in this story. Lillian and I have covered a lot of wrongful conviction cases. And one of the things that always comes up obviously is that when you put the wrong person in prison for murder, that leaves a killer out on the street. And that's often something that we just sort of think about. It's sort of a theoretical thing. It's like, oh, you got the wrong guy, so someone was left to kill or potentially kill again. You know, we know they killed once. They're out there. They could do it again. But here, that's the truth of the matter. Like, we can literally see that when you put somebody in prison wrongly for something they didn't do, a killer is out there and did kill again. And we know that. We know that happened here. Um, I mean, it's a really grim chapter in this tiny town's history that really affected the residents there for obvious reasons. And it turns from Adel, the city of daylilies, into Murderville, you know, where there's just sort of people are being brutally murdered. And it's really important. I think you can't underemphasize how brutal these murders were. Liliana, talk about Salish Patel and his family, but also his murder. Both of you have spent so much time doing this kind of reporting. I mean, you know, over the course of decades, this is this has been all you guys have basically done journalistically is focus on the criminal justice system and wrongfully convicted people. But some of the secondary characters in it are also interesting. You tell the story of this immigrant family and then this guy gets murdered. 
One of the things that's so haunting about this case, well, there's the brutality of the murder, which is really shocking. There's the fact that it's never solved. To this day, it's never solved. But also, sort of in the scheme of things, what Jordan and I found when we traveled to Adel repeatedly and talked about this case, um, asked people about it, is that for all the sort of memory and trauma that came with these other murders, very few people, relatively speaking, remember that killing. They kind of remember like, oh, yeah, there was an Indian guy who died. And and it was so... How, how was he killed? Well, there was um, evidence of a struggle throughout this house. Basically, he had come home from the... Uh, what was the... It was like the early morning hours or late no, at night. it was late at night. He was yeah. closed up the convenience store right. and then walked home and presumably met his killer in the house, which was the house of the relative that he was watching right. the store for. There was a struggle throughout the house. There's blood everywhere. There's multiple stabbings. The killer took a big TV and smashed it over Mr. Patel's head. They go in there. There is lots and lots of good evidence. I mean, that sounds grim to say, but there's lots of good evidence that could lead you to find this killer. To this day, we don't know that anything has ever been done with that evidence. And in fact, the crime scene investigator, we were the ones that told him that, and he was quite surprised about that all these years later. Given that you guys both have spent so many years covering these kinds of stories, what's the motive on the part of the police or the investigators to not want to look at that evidence? Is it, it, you know, it's sort of, it seems to me from listening to it that it's it's not necessarily that there was some conspiracy that they had it out for this guy. It's just sort of like, well, you know, he's a black guy. He's a criminal. Seems like he could do it, could have done it. So it's the easiest path. But is that is it really what it boils down to? I think that's one thing. I, I mean, I think that, you know, you sort of take a few steps back and what this case has in common with the cases that we always write about. It's that, that whether the sort of local police or the, the the statewide court system, there is this resistance or refusal to, to revisit these cases, even in the face of like truly damning uh, evidence that, that the state got it wrong. And that's a problem, you know, through and through. I mean, the, structurally, you know, the system is designed to to foreclose on the possibility of reopening these cases. I would also say just as to why maybe the cops did a crappy job from the start, you know, again, it's not necessarily that, like you said, it's not like it's a conspiracy, right? Necessarily. I mean, sure there could be. But I think it's, again, when you back up and look, it's it's absolutely par for the course in these kinds of cases. They um, were sloppy. We know that the GBI agent at the time, this not that this is a great excuse, was sort of a rookie. Um, and, I mean, there's a lot of things going on. They get a story that they really like. And then they get tunnel vision. And then they get, you know, they also have some implicit biases here where they immediately start only investigating black men. Like, there's absolutely no reason to think that Donna Brown wasn't killed by a white guy or a white woman. None. There's no reason to think that it would have been anyone in particular. But right away, you know, they see them hoeing in on black dudes. And then, you know, missing, just sloppiness, just sloppiness. And then they like this sort of story that they built up. And then they are resistant to seeing where all the reasons why that story might be wrong and, you know, just sort of brush them off. Liliana, as we wrap up, I, I do I want people to listen to this in its entirety. So I, I, I don't want to give away the ending, so to speak. Um, but Devanya Inman gets a new trial. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Devanya Inman, I mean, you know, it's kind of screwed. I, they're, they're, I will say, you know, it doesn't end on. Isn't that how these things are supposed to end, though? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. And, and you know, it, there's still... There, there is, um, you know, when you listen to the whole thing, I mean, I, I don't want to end on too grim a note, uh, and, but we do say throughout the podcast, I mean, look, you know, this isn't one of those, uh, as Jessica says, you know, people like to think that when it comes to these wrong, wrongful conviction stories that there is some mechanism that the system eventually will get it right. There'll be a way to fix it. Um, and that's just not a guarantee at all. And Devanya Inman's case is... a perfect example of that. There is a sort of outstanding legal filing that 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 could lead to something and a, a bit of new evidence, which is very, very important. Um, but if we've learned anything in our many years uh, combined of doing this kind of work, you know, he could spend the rest of his life in prison. Absolutely. And, and I would say that there is something to be said for public pressure on those things. I mean, there really is, because the, the legal filing that they have has some great new evidence that really should be considered. But you have to understand there's absolutely 
no, there's nothing that compels the court to review that evidence. So I think sometimes it does help to have that kind of public pressure. And that would be, you know, to the pitch for please people to listen to it and to actually, you know, be outraged, publicly outraged. No, because for sure. that often and, and, helps. And, and people who listen to it can ultimately become part of justice if they uh, if they're motivated to action by this. I mean, we've seen it in both of your reporting and in, you know, other reporters working on these cases. It can make a real tangible difference. You could save someone's life if you dig deeper into it. I, I want to just thank both of you for the incredible reporting that you did here. I mean, it's 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 really astonishingly uh, powerful. And even though it's dealing with, you know, real stakes for real people, it's gripping. It's an incredibly well-told piece of criminal justice journalism. So thank you both for doing it and for being with me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Jordan Smith and Liliana Segura are investigative reporters for The Intercept, and they're hosts of the new podcast series, Murderville. We are very excited to be able to share the first two episodes of this gripping new series. Both of those episodes are going to appear in your Intercepted podcast feed on Thursday. If you can't wait, you can listen to the full Murderville podcast series now exclusively on Stitcher Premium. You can sign up for a 30-day free trial using promo code MURDERVILLE. Starting on December 20th, this series will be available for free across all podcasting platforms on Apple, on Google, anywhere you get your podcasts. On The Intercept's website, you can also read the Murderville investigative series, four long-form articles by Liliana Segura and Jordan Smith. You can follow Jordan on Twitter. She is chronic underscore Jordan, and Liliana is at Liliana Segura. There are more people displaced around the world right now than ever before. This is the sixth year in a row that record has been broken. 68.5 million people, a little more than the entire population of the United Kingdom. Rarely does the role that U.S. neoliberal policies have played in stoking this vast international crisis get discussed. Our forever wars continue to push their way further across the Middle East and Africa, emboldened by a White House that continually denies the humanity of the refugees that it's helping to create. Today, we're going to hear from the Canadian hip-hop artist Shad about his own refugee story and his ambitious new album entitled A Short Story About a War. The songs on it are interwoven with the story of an imagined alternate universe, a desert dystopia torn apart by war and ruled by vying factions struggling to exist. Shad's creation is a useful metaphor for the very real world on which he speaks truth to power about class warfare, corrupt politics, and migration. Here is Shad. My name is Shad, Shadrach Kabango. I'm an artist, I'm a performer, currently the host of Hip Hop Evolution, that's a documentary series on Netflix. My family's from Rwanda, originally. The independent Central African Republic of Rwanda, land of endless green hills and forests, land of colorful people, of proud, wide-horned cattle, of brave hopes and noble aspirations, progress, cooperation, and peace. My parents both had to leave Rwanda in 1959. There was a conflict. So they were kids, five and 10 years old at that time. So they spent their early years as refugees all over East Africa. Ce sont des réfugiés. Depuis 1961, des troubles, puis l'accession à l'indépendance du Rwanda ont obligé quelques 120 000 personnes, pour la plupart des Vatutsi, à quitter leur pays. Ils se retrouvèrent des dizaines de milliers dans les pays limitrophes. Burundi, Uganda, Tanganyika, et provinces congolaises du Kivu. My older sister was born in Uganda, and I was born in Kenya. And then it came to a point where they said, you know what, we don't want our kids to grow up the way that we did as refugees. So they applied to live elsewhere. They applied to Canada. They applied to the United States. They applied to Russia. They applied to Australia. And at the time, Canada had a 
policy of welcoming immigrants. And so they said, yeah, we'll go. London, Ontario, sight unseen. We were some of the first Rwandans in Canada, I can say that pretty safely. Like, period, ever. As a little kid, it's too complicated to understand. It's even too complicated to understand now, you know, the story of why people are displaced, you know? Now when you're third world born, but first world born, sometimes you feel pride, sometimes you feel torn. See, my mother tongue's not what they speak, where my mother's from. She moved to London with her husband when their son was one. And one time after family ties, I turned on the news and saw my family die. Why? Pop said it's murder in the motherland and things about colonialism I didn't understand. Bam Jam is a song that kind of reflects on the immigrant experience, um, you know, with a sense of celebration and kind of defiant joy to it being a kid and being 11 years old when the genocide happened in in Rwanda and kind of watching that unfold on TV and just kind of not understanding and, and, you know, asking my parents and, you know, them trying to explain to an 11-year-old, you know, something as complicated as that, something that goes back decades and more. The killers, you've invaded my nights, singing a haunting lullaby. Drowning other voices, choking, suffocating, numbing, sending me to sleep. I'll Never Understand is a song on my first album, and that song was entirely constructed around my mom's poetry. So my mom, she wrote this amazing poem that I heard her perform at a genocide memorial event. I've talked to you in tears and anger, spat on you in rage, whispered to you in sorrow. So she had a dream where she was confronting someone who killed some of her family. She lost a lot of immediate family in the genocide. And she's confronting this person, and uh, they're in a chair, and she's kind of screaming at them and, and wrapping them up in chains. And as she explains in the poem, she was wrapping this person up in chains, and in her dizziness, she ended up being bound to that person. I'll never understand how it felt when my mom lost her dad, her sister, and the only brother that she ever had. Sad. The fact they could have been spared, or the fact that to this day nobody cares for the innocent. Victims of a full-fledged holocaust, cause folks only holler if the cost of dollars lost is high. So regardless of the number of lives, when poor blacks die, they always turn a blind eye, and I'll never understand why. Then she kind of goes about unraveling and untying the chains from both herself and that person. And so it becomes this metaphor for forgiveness and how when we don't forgive, we can become bound uh, to people in in ways that are unhealthy and hurtful to us um, as well as them. I untie the chains of those who knifed my sister's throat, leaving her begging for a better death. I untie the chains painfully, purposefully, knowing the one who said to do it, Short story about a war, it is a concept album. The way I think about it is it's a story, and the story occurred to me. I haven't had a lot of moments like this, but just a kind of a burst of imagination, and this story just kind of appeared in my mind, and it was a story of a war. One time I looked out my window and I saw this boy wake up on a desert floor, and all around him were the sights and the sounds of war. It's funny how it all makes sense. The war, our economic system of self-interest and ruthless competition, and the desert, the resulting landscape of our environment and our souls. Kind of a simple image that I saw, which was like this desert space, and this boy wakes up and notices immediately there's the sounds of people screaming and people running, and there's bullets kind of passing, whizzing by, and he feels the fear within himself. And then he learns that that is what the world is. The whole world is this desert. The whole world is this war. There's these different factions that are fighting in it, and you just kind of have to survive. So, for example, I saw this sniper. I saw a sniper at a higher elevation with higher and firing power from a higher education but also alienated from the earth, from the dirt, from the food, removed. I saw a powerful establishment and an opposing army, and I saw their different rationales for destruction. 
lot of destruction. I saw one group forced to go toe-to-toe in this war zone with only stones to throw. And they were vilified by all sides, but for actually relatively small crimes. And the very interesting thing that happened was that immediately I saw the parallels between this world and these characters and our world in a weird way. The game hasn't changed, same old monopoly, same couple players on all of the property. I ain't a prop, don't get no props to me, my people still don't need property. Think we forgot we was just property, think we'll be bought again, think that they brought them democracy. I think they brought back them poppies, my people locked up and chopping. That's hypocrisy, we wasn't thought of, we wasn't brought up and taught, we was set up, that's why we get caught up. Y'all discarded us, put them bars up, of course we got cars up, we hard cause we hard up. They got them startups and Starbucks, we got a couple of stars, so they turn them to start us, they starve us, can't even drink water. Up north with that Flint water, all in the sink as they sleep for the kids on the brink. Y'all went to Harvard and Stanford, think harder for answers, man, think. We're far below standards, don't tell me anger won't help us, you told me to cancel a drink, we need a shrink. We just see boys making bands and sink. Open your eyes, my fan. We all could be going in a blink. I think it just came from living in our world right now, in our cities right now, in our society right now, and just kind of feeling the polarization, feeling the tension, the weight of the economic pressures on people and uh, economic violence. So it became very clear in my mind, this is a metaphor for powerlessness and it's a metaphor for the hypocrisy of power. What I tried to do is kind of like weave in and out of this fictional world and our reality and even my own reality. So, you know, we're gone in a blink. And that is very connected to the idea of Black Lives Matter. And sometimes it feels like our lives don't matter and we're just gone in a blink. Violence is something that at least I define very broadly. And we have a way of hiding it, disguising it, putting a nice suit on it. I think this, the war is a metaphor for all the different kinds of violence that take place. Trump is just one kind. Yeah, one time for the people in my bloodline. A proud son of the people of the sunshine. My love letter to my people on the front line. Yours truly, even if my pen was unsigned. Know it, the unnamed poet. My life is just a link in the chain of my chain glowing. Me and the beat is thinking the same. She say going, I just sprint in my lane. Ooh, saying it can't slow. All this talk about violence and peace, it kind of ends up playing out in our everyday, you know, relationships and work. How are we going to wrestle with this in our everyday lives? You know, our ordinary, everyday lives, not even necessarily in our conversations about politics, but just really in our relationships and our communities. Damn, it feels good to be back. Damn, it feels good to be black. They keep on killing us. We just keep killing it. Mama said killing is not where the ailing is. Let us be back. Lord knows she's been through it. She said a human is not who the villain is. She said it's fear. It's greed and it's pride. You see it inside. That's what the system is built on and what it instills in us. Now I've been feeling this vibe. Honestly, the haters can hate. Just let the creators create and let the creator be judged. I mean, too many mistakes to be grudging. Besides, all of us lost without That was the Canadian hip-hop artist Shad. His album, A Short Story About a War, is out now. He spoke to our producer, Jack Desidoro. And that does it for this week's show. And this is also the last episode of 2018. Intercepted is going to return on January 16th with a brand new episode. But remember, tomorrow you will get the first two episodes of Murderville in your Intercepted podcast feed. Make sure to check it out. It is really spectacular journalism. Also, as the holiday season kicks into gear, we have a few suggestions for you. You could give a gift membership to The Intercept or Intercepted to a friend, a loved one, even a foe. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, or if you want to give someone the gift of independent journalism, log on to theintercept.com slash join. We have sweatshirts, t-shirts, stickers, and other great thank you gifts. Also, you could give the gift of hilarious political cartoons, thoughtful comic essays, and powerful illustrated journalism in four beautiful print quarterlies with a one-year membership to our sister site, The Nib. You can enter the code GIVECOMICS at checkout for 25% off a gift membership. That's at the nib.com slash gift. That's the nib.com slash gift. 
Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Lital Malad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next year, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.